Well, Peter had really blown it. He blew it. He reverted to a form of legalism. And he did this out of a fear of professing believers in Christ who strongly pushed the false salvation of keeping the Jewish law as the means to receive salvation in Christ. In Galatians 2, 11 through 14 records the Apostle Paul publicly confronting Peter. He called him Cephas in this particular passage. It's another name like Peter that means rock. Galatians 2, 11 through 14, just listen. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The circumcision party were those that were professing Christians who were teaching that to come to Christ, first you had to become a Jew. You had to begin obeying the law of Moses. And Peter Very ironically, the very one in Acts chapter 10 that God used to demonstrate the salvation in Christ and the the Holy Spirit are given equally to Jew and Gentile by grace alone. Ironically, now Peter is communicating by his actions of refusing to eat Gentile food, eating only kosher food, now passively giving the message to Gentiles that God does not accept you as a Gentile. Very ironic that Peter is now involved in that. In other words, while Peter was not of the circumcision party, sometimes called Judaizers, he was playing right into their hands. And in fact, he led astray other Jewish believers and even the soon-to-be great missionary Barnabas. And by doing so, what he did was he was putting out the fires of genuine love for Christ, which is based in Salvation given by grace alone through faith alone. And boy, Peter paid a hefty price. A public condemnation from the mouth of the Apostle Paul himself. A public rebuke in Antioch in Paul's home church. Now, no one would doubt Peter's salvation. He knew the biblical gospel. He knew Christ. And yet, in this particular instance, his love had grown cold It had been reduced to pleasing men and abiding by legalistic man-made rules. His love had gone cold. And it can be at times that your love for Christ has gone cold. The Lord Jesus himself warned the church at Ephesus that they had lost their first what? Their first love. They lost the love that they had at first If your love for Christ grows cold, it can manifest itself in numbers of ways. It might be a a stubborn return to destructive thoughts, a stubborn return to sin habits. It might be a systematic drawing away from the body of Christ, being around God's people less and less. It might be blame shifting, blaming others, or even blaming your church for your lack of love for Christ. It might be you seeing in your own life anger and bitterness and seething, unchecked rage, which is now going 
full force in your heart toward another. Or your love for Christ may be growing cold as evidenced by your thoughts continually returning to your rights, to your wishes, to your desires. And all of these serve as idols of the heart that you set up and you cherish. Maybe even you think, I'll take them down soon, just not today. This is the situation we find ourselves in in Israel now about 200 years after the semi-conquest of Canaan, the love of Israel has grown, grown cold. The, the fires of faith of the previous generations, they're long out. They're replaced now, as I said last Sunday night, by having become now more and more like their pagan Canaanite neighbors. The very ones they were supposed to drive out, the ones they were supposed to destroy, were now their next-door neighbors. And these neighbors had subverted Israel with the worship of false gods, most preeminently Baal, the primary Canaanite god, as well as the Canaanite goddess Asherah or Ashereth or Ashtoreth. There's different versions. Altars on which to sacrifice to Baal, cultic worship centers. These altars had been set up all over Israel. And Asherah poles carved images to the Canaanite goddess Asherah or Ashtoreth. These carved images had also been set up all over Israel. And in fact, they were often together. And in fact, an Asherah became a generic term for any cultic shrine to a false god. That's the situation we come to in Israel now in our text. We're in Judges chapter 6. And in Judges 6, once again, we're going back to our series, Backstage Before Bethlehem. And we're going to see the direct intervention of the pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem Jesus Christ known very often in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Now, last time we saw in Judges 2 that the angel of the Lord appeared to all of Israel right after the conquest, and he indicts them for lacking the faith to fully conquer Canaan, and he announced that discipline was coming. Now we fast forward about 200 years, and the angel of the Lord enters into the life of Israel once again, Israel continues to experience the consequences of their own darkened faith, their smoldering love for God. And yet God pursues them and he comes to them with this undying commitment to his covenant with Israel. Let me kind of tell you our plan for tonight because we're going to take on kind of a, a hefty chunk of scripture. First, we're going to walk through the story of Judges 6 and 7. We just need to get familiar with the landscape here. Second, I'd like to show you three ways that the angel of the Lord reignites Israel's love. How does the angel of the Lord reignite Israel's love? And then last, because it's in the story, I want to give you a spiritual warning that's really embedded in this text. And so we'll walk through the the landscape here. I'll show you three ways the angel of the Lord reignites Israel's love. And then I'll give a spiritual warning, which is really embedded in the story. So first, let's walk through the story. Let's get to know this. I don't know if taking notes will be all that useful to you right now. We're just going to walk through the story. We'll get a little more structured in the next part. Judges 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The Midianites were so oppressive at this point, along with the Amalekites, verse 3, and then also the people of the east. That's an unknown people that were with the Midianites and the Amalekites. But generally speaking, in this story, when we say the Midianites, we mean all of those people. 
But they were so oppressive that the Israelites found caves and mountain hiding places to run to when the raiders would cross into their land. Verse 5 says that the raiders would come like locusts. They would destroy, they would consume the crops in the field, they would take their own farm animals and and use the food that was already there and feed their own animals. They would render the land useless and when there was nothing left to destroy, then they would go back home. And Israel would come out of the caves and come out of the mountain hiding places and have to start all over again. And what was the result? Verse 6 of chapter 6, and Israel was brought very low. It's a word that means humiliated. Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now, in verse 1, you notice that this is the Lord doing this. The Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Why is this? Because the Israelites were being Canaanized. They were being Baalized. They were being conformed to their pagan neighbors. They were becoming like their neighbors. They were becoming like these false gods. And so the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other people of the east would cross the Jordan River from the east in raiding parties. They would set up camp for long periods of time. And when they and their livestock were done eating up and using up all that they could find, they would leave. And now finally, after seven years of this pattern, Israel cries out for help, and in His grace, God responds. Verse 7, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Now, this isn't exactly a cry of repentance, but at the very least, it is a cry of pain and suffering, and at least they're crying out to the true and living God. They're not going to the Baal altars. They're not going to the Asherah poles. At this particular moment. But this unnamed prophet. He issues a rebuke to Israel. The Lord sent a prophet. Verse 8 to the people of Israel. And he said to them. Thus says the Lord the God of Israel. I led you up from Egypt. And brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. And from the hand of all who oppressed you. And drove them out before you. And gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. But now, having issued the rebuke, God answers their prayers. And we see now the appearance of the angel of the Lord once again, as always, in in the interest of Israel. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So we come now to Gideon, the human hero of the story. He's in his hometown of Ophrah in the tribal land of Manasseh. Gideon is beating out wheat in the winepress. In other words, that's a way to hide from the Midianites so they might not find this particular harvest. And in verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. What a great affirmation. The angel of the Lord gives Gideon this this affirmation that God is about to do something marvelous through Gideon. And so does Gideon say, Tell me what to do, my Lord and my God. No, not even close. Immediately. And, And I think it's appropriate to insert a whiny voice. In verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Not much mighty about him. 
And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now clearly he is not, doesn't understand yet to whom he's talking. He doesn't know that this is God himself, but there is clearly an air of authority to the angel of the Lord. And so he takes him seriously. Again, the angel of the Lord gives Gideon assurance. And again, Gideon questions him. Verse 13, well, we read verse 13, verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And in verse 16, yet again, the angel of the Lord gives Gideon assurance of his coming victory over the Midianites. Well, Gideon still isn't convinced. And so he asks for a sign, a very simple little sign that the angel of the Lord would stay right there at that place until Gideon would return with a hospitality gift And with patience and with grace, the angel of the Lord, in a very rare move for God, waits on Gideon. And he waits there. So Gideon goes and prepares a a meal of meat, bread, and broth, and he brought it back. This would have taken hours. You weren't opening a a, uh, can of beef broth. And you weren't going to the store to get prepared, prepared meat. This would have taken hours. And yet the angel of the Lord graciously waits Verse 20, and the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived he was the angel of the Lord. You think? And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. And now we get a small indication that God is reigniting Israel's love for him through Gideon. In verse 24, Gideon builds an altar to God. And in the book of Judges, this is very unusual. Why would this be unusual? Because the only altar around in this town of Ophrah is the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole that's next to it, sponsored by, guess who, Gideon's own father, Joash. Those are the only altars around. And in fact, that very night, the Lord, presumably the angel of the Lord, once again, gives Gideon instructions. He tells him to take two of his father's bulls and pull down the altar to Baal and to hack down, to cut down, the Asherah pole beside it. And in its place, he's to build another altar. This one is to the Lord, right on the same site. It's on a hill, probably called the Stronghold in verse 26. And he's to use the wood from the Asherah pole he just cut down and sacrifice one of the bulls to the Lord. It was to be an act of cleansing, an act of restoration, of faithfulness to Yahweh. One little problem. The town of Ophrah was filled with faithful Baal and Asherah worshipers. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 27. So Gideon took ten of his servants, ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. The next morning, the men of Ophrah discovered what had been done and who had done it, and they meant to murder Gideon. 
They weren't thankful. They weren't glad that Gideon had pointed them back to faith in the true and living God. They'd turned so far from Yahweh their God that they would desire to kill the one who was actually now being faithful. But now, Joash, Gideon's father, he actually defends Gideon with some good old-fashioned polytheistic logic. He basically says, hey, if Baal is truly a powerful God, let him defend himself. Chapter 6, verse 30. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Now, this doesn't necessarily tell us that Joash is repenting of his idolatrous worship of Baal, but at least he's saying, hey, maybe if Baal is such a great God, he can take care of this himself. Maybe he should be able to defend himself. By the way, if you know your Bible a bit, this may sound familiar to you. Centuries later, when Israel has turned now to the worship of Baal once again, the prophet Elijah set up a contest between the true God of Israel and Baal, and he set up this contest at Mount Carmel that, that whoever was the true and living God was supposed to rain down fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice. Of course, Baal didn't do anything, and so Elijah taunted the false prophets of Baal. This is one of the funniest verses in all of the Bible. 1 Kings eighteen twenty seven. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. This is exactly what Joash is saying. Hey, look, I'm not the one to say anything, but how about this? If Baal is a true god, then let him defend himself. As a matter of fact, in verse 32, Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Well, now the Spirit of God comes upon Gideon and he gathers a massive army from several tribes of Israel. It had to happen quickly because verse 33 tells us that now the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east were coming to invade and deliver the death blow to Israel and they came in power. This is showdown time and now Gideon needs reassurance. And in one of the most misapplied and misconstrued events in all the Old Testament, Gideon engages with God in the famous fleece incident. Chapter 6, verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground, on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. The phrase still used in our circles today is, I'm putting out a fleece, meaning I'm trying to determine God's will. This is not Gideon trying to determine God's will. Gideon already knows God's will. 
He's asking for courage. He's asking for assurance that what God has already told him will come true. And so Gideon asked for these signs of Yahweh's presence with him and that what's been told to him will in fact happen. And now in one of the most beloved stories that children are told in Sunday school, we come to the actual battle against Midian itself. Many of you are familiar with this part of the story already. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Gideon has 32,000 troops with him with which to defend Israel, but God will have none of it. His intention is to reignite Israel's trust and faith and love in himself, not to give them any reason to have faith in, in their, their own power, their own abilities. And so God does something shocking. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, when it says here, lest Israel boast over me, doesn't mean boast over God as in boasting in God. It means boast in themselves as opposed to and over boasting in God. And so now Gideon is given by God two tests with which to send some men home. The first test we might call the test of courage. Gideon told the men that anyone who was afraid could go home. 22,000, gone. That was easy. The second test, we might call the test of alertness. Gideon brought the men to get water, and God told Gideon that all the men who stick their faces in the water to, to drink should be sent home, but only those who brought the water to their faces were to stay. I guess this was perhaps a test of alertness in that they could be aware of their surroundings while they're drinking. So a, a test of courage, a test of alertness brought Gideon's army down to just 300 it may be also these are just arbitrary tests that God set up to accomplish his will. doesn't really matter. The end was clear. God whittled Gideon's army down to the point that only God could receive glory in the coming victory. And I would imagine these 300 men were godly men, as we'll see in their response and their, their faith. But I would also imagine that they would rather have been with 31,700 other guys before they go up against this massive army. But God gives the assurance of the fleeces. He now makes Gideon trust him. But yet now in another offer of assurance, the Lord does a very unusual favor for Gideon. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 9. Verse 12 says that the enemies were like locusts, that they were everywhere. And the Lord has Gideon to sneak down to the enemy camp. Now, if you've noticed already, it seems like Gideon is not the bravest guy ever. And he needs a lot of help. In fact, even in verse 10, when God told him to go sneak down to the camp, he said, if you're afraid to go, you can bring your servant with you. And he sneaks down to the camp and overhears one enemy man telling another a weird dream he had. Have you ever had a strange dream? In this dream, a giant piece of bread comes and flattens the tent of the enemy. What does that mean? Well, the man's friend interpreted the dream about the vicious bread. Verse 14, and his comrade answered, there is, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And so Gideon hears from the mouth of an enemy that he's going to win. I don't know how much more reassurance you can get. 
And finally, now Gideon has the courage to do what the Lord has called him to do. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Do you notice something? They've got torches in one hand and trumpets in another. There's no weapons involved here. And when the chaos starts, the Lord causes confusion among the enemies such that they begin killing one another and the enemy is now running for their lives. Now Gideon gets his army back and he summons a large army to give chase and they they captured all the territory all the way back to the Jordan River, took back all their land, And they killed the two head princes of Midian. A tremendous victory. Tremendous victory. And now, at least for a time, Israel would turn back to faithfulness in Yahweh. So that's the story. That's where we are. Israel having to have their love reignited. But how did God do this? How did the angel of the Lord reignite Israel's love? And that's the second part of What I'd like to do tonight, I want to show you three ways the angel of the Lord reignited Israel's love. The first way the angel of the Lord reignited Israel's love we'll call conviction through preaching. Conviction through preaching. Turn back now with me to chapter 6. God uses a spiritual shepherd of Israel, an unnamed prophet, to preach the word of God to them. In chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, and the sermon has two parts. Part one is a survey of God's faithfulness to Israel. It's a survey of God's faithfulness to Israel. Chapter eight, the second half, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out from drove them out before you and gave you their land. All these marvelous, miraculous works of power that God had implemented on behalf of Israel. And so he starts off with a survey of his own faithfulness. And the second part of this sermon is an indictment against Israel for her unfaithfulness, her covenant disloyalty. Verse 10, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Listen, don't miss the emotion here. This is very poignant. This is emotional. This is God saying, I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. This is him saying, I'm offering to be your God. I'm offering to protect you, to love you, to give you prosperity, to bless you. I offered my love. God has committed his love to them and they've disregarded him and he's disappointed, heartbroken. You know, it's interesting to me to compare 
the fact that the message of the truth never changes. Never changes. This is basically the same sermon that the angel of the Lord preached 200 years earlier in Judges chapter 2. Go back with me to Judges chapter 2, verse 1. We did this last week, but it should sound familiar to you. Now the angel of the Lord, chapter 2, verse 1, went up from Gilgal to Bacham and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land and you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you, which is exactly what happens now in chapter six or prior to chapter six. The same issue of covenant betrayal has resurfaced again and God simply preaches the same message. It is absolutely first and foremost the preached word of God which reignites your love, reignites your devotion to the Lord. Why is this? Well, the truth is cleansing. The truth is purifying in nature. It's convicting. The truth cuts and it wounds and then it binds up and it puts salve and and healing lotion, so to speak, on these wounds. Listen, I've seen this. I've witnessed it. I've seen it in this very room countless times. I've seen some of you in tears, some of you with your head hung down because the word of God has let its arrow fly and it has hit you right in the place where your love has grown cold. I've seen it. It's a painful experience, but it's a good and necessary first step. The great physician must first open a wound he must open an incision before he can remove the cancer of wayward faith the tumor of idolatry of the heart which is by the way why the christian who doesn't make hearing the word of god really your top priority why you can become more and more deaf to the call of god to reignite your love you become deaf to this we need preaching it keeps your heart tender it keeps it pliable it keeps it soft The the word of God takes your heart and your mind and continually just molds and makes it. But the more you separate yourself from preaching, your heart becomes harder. Your mind becomes more entrenched. And so the angel of the Lord begins with preaching, conviction through preaching, reigniting Israel's love. There's a second way that the angel of the Lord begins reigniting Israel's love. We'll call this one cleansing through removal. Cleansing through through removal to reignite your love for the lord this doesn't entail just hearing the truth and feeling some sort of conviction that conviction has to lead to action it has to lead to something tangible idols must be removed Uh, the idol of selfishness the idol of all your dreams coming true the idol of comfort the idol that's been weighing the church of jesus christ down for the last year the idol of safety The idol of sexual immorality, the idol of a perfect spouse, the idol of perfect children, the idol of of personal happiness. All those idols have to be torn down, just like the angel of the Lord had Gideon do. For you personally, conviction must lead to cleansing, to actual changes, to actions which make a real difference. When somebody says, and for some reason, People want to confess their sins to me as their pastor and they say, I'm really sorry that I did this. My response is very often, well, what are you going to do differently? Because conviction through preaching is one thing, but cleansing through removal is what has to happen next. 
In the case of Israel, God gave Gideon a symbolic task. Tear down the idolatrous altars and the shrines in your hometown. And even Gideon tried to do this secretly at night. He didn't exactly make a stand against idolatry, but at least he did obey the Lord and he turned conviction into a cleansing action, a removal. And not only did God have Gideon cleanse by removing the idolatrous shrines, God himself provided cleansing by removal by taking 99% of Gideon's army. I don't know if God was aiming for that exact percentage, 99.6%, 0.06% actually. That's a lot. He removed it. This isn't just, well, a couple of guys, if you're scared, you can go. This is almost everyone. God has used the vast army of Israel in the past. In fact, we saw uh, in the Pentateuch 605,000 strong. But in this case, God needed to remove the potential idol of Israel, ever attributing their success to themselves. And you recall chapter 7, verse 2, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me. What is he doing here? Well, it's the same reason that Isaac is born to Abraham when Abraham is 100 years old and his wife Sarah is 90. Abraham and Sarah can never say, look at this son that we have made with our youth and vitality. No, he's a miracle. And the victory that Gideon has over the Midianites is a miracle attributable only to God. One of my great concerns as a pastor is when I see someone who likes the preaching of God's word, maybe even loves it, maybe even enjoys it. By the way, Hebrews chapter 6 says that it's possible to love the word of God and not be a Christian. But maybe it's been years since meaningful adjustments and changes are made in response to preaching. That when the application section of the sermon starts, that's when you start putting your Bible away. That's when you start thinking about lunch or dinner. That's when you let your mind wander. Now, I'm a little bit sneaky. I like to put application in the middle of sermons because then you can't do that. But once in a while... At the end of a message, here are three things to do differently with your life. And I hear the shuffling and all that. Don't do it. The preached word of God demands a cleansing in order to reignite your love. Let me give you just three examples. Are you having trouble controlling your angry response to others? Then cleanse your mind and heart by repenting of all that you have, to all that you have offended and begin aggressively memorizing Scripture. Remove those difficulties. Another example, are you having trouble drawing near to your spouse? Maybe now you're just settling into the minimal, mediocre relationship with the one who should be your greatest source of joy. Then cleanse your numbness and put romance and time together and verbal affirmation and service to one another. Put it in your schedule continually. Remove the junk and put the good stuff in. You having trouble making it to church consistently? which is hamstringing your spiritual life, well, cleanse your schedule. Remove other things from your schedule and determine that Sunday starts at dinner time on Saturday. It is cleansing by removal. All of these things are examples of ways your love for the Lord can grow cold. If your love for self-control has grown cold, your love for God has grown cold. If your love for your spouse has grown cold, your love for God has grown cold. If your love for the church has grown cold, your love for God has grown cold. 
By the way, a sermon I will never forget as long as I live is a sermon on the cold love of Ephesus. And the title of the sermon was The Typical Bible Church. Don't let it happen. Conviction through preaching must lead to cleansing through removal. There's a third way the angel of the Lord reignited Israel's love. We'll call this one comfort through demonstration. Comfort through demonstration. Did you notice that it seems that Gideon is trying every way possible to wiggle out of this assignment? To wiggle out of doing what God has told him? And yet in his graciousness and patience, God gave Gideon demonstration after demonstration of his presence, of his power, of his protection, The visit of the angel of the Lord to Gideon in the first place included, remember, Gideon asking the angel of the Lord to wait for a few hours while he prepared a meal. The angel of the Lord ignited the meal and vanished from Gideon's sight. I would think that would be enough. Gideon maybe saying, okay, I think something divine is now happening. But then Gideon requests another sign. And his request for a sign wasn't an indicator of great faith. Frankly, it was an indicator of his unbelief. The angel of the Lord had been very clear about God's will and the coming victory. Gideon had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 34. God had confirmed his calling by virtue of the fact of 32,000 men responding to his call to arms. And yet Gideon asked for still another sign. And in chapter 6, verses 36 through 40, the sign of the fleece, the writer in these five verses suddenly does not refer to God by his covenant name, Yahweh. He only refers to him by his generic name, Elohim, the most generic name for God. What is this demonstrating? It's showing that Gideon is still having trouble distinguishing between Yahweh, the true and living God, the God of Israel, and a God in the general sense. Gideon still has a semi-pagan notion of God. Well, okay, if you're the real God, prove this to me. If you're the real God, prove this to me. If you're the real God, show this sign, show that sign. Here's what's amazing, though. Despite Gideon's wavering faith, God still responds. Don't you just sort of expect that after three signs already, and now we get to the fleece, and Gideon says, I'm I'm laying a fleece of wood. Don't you just expect God to say, great, I'm about to set it on fire, move back. But he doesn't. He's patient. He still responds. God still gives him what he asks with the the fleece of wool. And by the way, we don't see this immediately, but in verse 39, Gideon admits, here's the word, that he's testing God. It's the same word and the same category of testing as Israel testing God with their complaining in the wilderness back in Exodus 17. And in fact, Exodus 17, verse 7 says, Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that didn't go real well for them. And yet for Gideon, God is so patient. In fact, unlike God, Gideon is not true to his word. Look with me at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. That is a big, fat lie. Because what did he do the next day? Uh, Lord, can you flip it around and do it again? Now at this point, 
you as the reader, you become a little bit suspicious that maybe Gideon is trying to get out of this deal. That maybe he doesn't want to be obedient. Gideon here is trying to manipulate God. And yet God is patient and continues to give him assurance after assurance, even though Gideon tests him. But get this. Not only does God patiently respond when Gideon requests sign after sign after sign, God gives Gideon this unsolicited piece of help in the form of the dream talk that he overhears. Gideon needs so much reassurance, so much help, that God literally has an enemy say, chapter 7, verse 14, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. It is the most obvious, probably, prophecy in all of the Bible with a guy literally there listening to it. Over and over and over again, God gives these demonstrations of assurance, assurance that God has not abandoned him. And frankly, Israel deserved to have God abandon them, and yet God continues stoking the fires of their love. Let me ask you a question. What do you do When the fires of your love for God seem to have been reduced to ashes, to smoldering embers, what do you do? Can I tell you something very simple to do? Because God has demonstrated his assurance to you over and over again. You just have to look back and recognize it. Here's what you do. Sit down and make a list of everything God has done for you. Everything. I'll bet you could list hundreds of things just from your short-term memory alone. Things which, looking back, might even seem like you were testing the Lord, and yet he did them. Wow, I remember this time I was really into this sin, and yet God was still blessing this area of my life. He was kind to me. Times when the Lord has been so patient with you. Times when God has given you blessings that you don't deserve. Times when God has not disciplined you when you do deserve it. And how about this? How about thinking about what it took for God to reach down out of eternity to pluck you out of your own sin and your own degradation and to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. And remember that moment that he opened your eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of Christ and to receive forgiveness of sin. I'll tell you this, there is nothing like the gospel to reignite your love. Nothing like the gospel You see, God's love isn't contained in mere words. The words of God describe his loving actions, his demonstration of love. What was the ultimate result of the Lord reigniting love by means of conviction through preaching and cleansing through removal and comfort through demonstration? What was the result? At the beginning of this saga... The men around Gideon wanted to kill him because he broke down their idols. But now, chapter 7, verse 20, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord, for Yahweh and for Gideon. That's a far cry from having their towns and villages polluted with Baal and Ashtoreth worship. That's a renewed love. That is a reignited love. And while I would love to just stop there and have us pray and be done, we have to place this story into the bigger context of the book of Judges. Judges demonstrates that Israel cannot maintain a consistent love for God. They're incapable. And in fact, Gideon himself now becomes emblematic of this inconsistency. 
We've walked through the story. We've seen how God has reignited Israel's love, at least for the moment. But now we have to let the whole story speak because there is a spiritual warning embedded here, not only in the story, but more importantly, in what happens afterward. Now, just to be fair, we should note that Gideon is, in fact, listed in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11.32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. So Gideon is listed in very good company. But could I say this? This was simply a snapshot, a photograph of one time in his life when he was faithful. The question is, is Gideon the Sunday school version of himself? The coloring page that maybe some of you colored as children with Gideon as the hero. In fact, Gideon's life gives us two warnings to keep us humble. To stay in the tight zone of our love for the Lord, our obedience to the Lord. The first warning we'll call Gideon's self-exaltation. And the second warning we'll call Gideon's reputation. Gideon's self-exaltation and Gideon's reputation. The first warning we'll call Gideon's self-exaltation. Turn with me to chapter 8 of Judges. After the battle, after the dust had settled, verse 22 of chapter 8, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, The Lord will rule over you. That sounds pious. Sounds humble. Sounds like what ought to be said. And now Israel has a happy ending for the time. Verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. But that's not the whole story. Gideon says, I don't want to be king. I do not want to be king. That's what his words say, but his actions say exactly the opposite. Verses 24 through 26, Gideon requests from his men. He he, he says, well, let me just make one little request from you. I don't need to be king, just one little request. And he receives gold from them, 1,700 shekels of gold from the spoils taken from Midian. In today's money, that's $1.4 million. That's a king's treasure. He had killed the princes of Midian, but then he pursued and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. In verse 21, the kings of Midian. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels and he kept them for, them, for himself. These were the king's symbol of authority and of power. Verse 26 tells us he also kept the royal kingly purple robes. He kept the neckbands or pendants for himself and he dressed the part of a king. He dressed in the purple robes. He dressed in the the ornaments of the king. Then he took all the gold that he had received and he crafted a priest's ephod that's a, a chest piece and he put it in his city, Ophrah. What did this do? This said, my city is the capital. And this misled Israel once again, verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in a city in Ophrah and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. What does that mean? It means that Israel came and bowed down to the ephod. And by the way, he abandoned the law of God. He took as many women as he could and he had 70 sons. In the ancient Near East, 
A king with 70 sons was considered invincible. This is something the self-proclaimed king would do to exalt himself. By the way, he named one of his sons Abimelech. Every other occurrence of the name Abimelech in Scripture is the title of a king like Pharaoh. And Abimelech means my father is the king. No, Gideon considered himself the king of Israel. And we're warned by Gideon's self-exaltation. Sorry to blow your Sunday school version of Gideon. There's a second warning, Gideon's reputation. His reputation. If you've been at Grace for any period of time, you've heard us say many times that in the Bible, a person's name is very often reflective of his reputation, of who he is, his character, the real self of that person. There's very good evidence that Gideon is a nickname. That's not his given name. It's not what his father and mother named him. Gideon means one who hacks, one who cuts down. This is certainly a reference to his tearing down of the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole and burning it with the sacrifice bowl. He is the one, he is the Gideon, the one who cuts down. Then you say, well, what about Gideon's renaming in chapter 6, verse 32 to Jerob Baal? Let Baal contend against him. We have to get in the weeds of some details here for just a moment, so stay with me. When the renaming of Gideon happens in chapter 6, verse 32, this is not a renaming of Gideon. This is a reclassifying of his name for the moment. Remember, Gideon's father, Joash, he's sponsored, he's endorsed Baal worship. Jerob Baal does not technically mean let Baal contend against him. It simply means Baal contends or Baal fights or Baal is winning. In other words, it's what a Baal worshiper would name his son. Any other reader in Gideon's time, if you ask him, what's this guy's name? If he asks you, what's this guy's name? And you say, Jerob Baal. He would say, oh, well, his father's a Baal worshiper. It is a tribute to Baal. Is what Gideon was named when he was born. It was a tribute to Baal. But now his name for the moment is reinterpreted to mean let Baal contend against him. But in reality, Gideon is Gideon's name of faithfulness and Jerob Baal is his name that means Baal is fighting and Baal is winning. And we would think that the story of Gideon is done at the end of chapter 8 when Gideon dies. But the story doesn't end there. Because the question is, will Yahweh be exalted in Israel or will Jerob Baal? Will Baal begin winning? Will false idol worship take root once again? Look with me at chapter 8, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. No, the story of Gideon doesn't end with the death of Gideon. Gideon is referred to nine more times in Judges chapter 9. But never does the inspired text, never does the author, the narrator, ever again call him Gideon, the one who cuts down the idols. Always now he is Jerob Baal. Baal is winning. Baal is winning. Baal is winning. Yes, absolutely. The snapshot taken by the author of Hebrews tells the story of a man who at one time walked in obedience to God. 
But the full story of Gideon's life shows one that was pockmarked with pride, arrogance, and self-aggrandizement. Sunday school lessons paint Gideon with the snapshot of his glorious day in battle, and that's great, it is true. But his reputation with the writer of Judges is less than stellar. Let me talk about your life. Fast forward to the end of your life. What name do you want to be known by? You want to be known by the name of the one that followed after Christ? Or do you want to be known by the name of the one whose love grew cold? That everyone just scratched their head and said, what happened? What happened? How do you want your life characterized? As a constant up and down, maybe even ending in failure, even though you're saved? Or by an ever-growing devotion to Christ, obeying your Savior, living for Him, dying for Him. By the way, there's a bigger purpose to the failed, self-aggrandizing, self-enthroned kingship of Gideon. The context of all the book of Judges is that in the last several chapters, four times the book repeats, in those days there was no king in Israel. And what goes with that that Declaration twice, chapter 17 and chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, total spiritual anarchy. What is judges and what is the failure of Gideon as a self-enthroned king? What does it remind you? What does it remind me of? Well, it reminds us that Israel will only be fully devoted to God when the true king of Israel comes. When Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, returns to set up his kingdom, then what Joel 3.17 says will come true. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. And so ultimately, to reignite their love permanently, Israel needs their king. And it will happen. Zechariah 12.10 promises that someday... They will look on him whom they have pierced and they will have great sorrow and they will repent. Well, for a time, Peter disappointed the Lord. He gave in to the circumcision party. He tried to please men. The Apostle Paul rebuked him publicly and sharply, but it it had its effect apparently. Several years after Peter's visit to Antioch and his public spanking from Paul, Another meeting took place, this time in Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts 15. You don't have to turn there, just listen. And at this meeting, what was really the very first Christian conference, there was a big question. And it was the same question that Paul had been dealing with in the Galatian church. Just how Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian? And some believers, former Pharisees in fact, Pharisees were troublemakers even after they were Christians apparently, They're saying that to be a Christian, you had to obey the law of Moses. And if you're a man, you have to be circumcised. And so the apostles and the church leaders gathered at this first Christian conference to address this question. And they engaged in what Acts 15, 7 calls much debate. That's a euphemism for they were arguing about this. And guess who stood up to defend the gospel of Christ? And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Nice job, Peter. That's a reignited love. That is a love that is on fire for the truth and for his God. In fact, Peter would continue defending the gospel, which says that all men may be saved and all on equal footing with one another. And these would be some of his last words. He introduces his final letter in 2 Peter 1, Simeon Peter, another word for Simon, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter's love reignited. How about yours? Has your love grown cold? Are you seeking to be reignited I want to just give you one last prescription and admonition to avoid being a Jerob Baal. It's a very simple one. I am prescribing to you a large dose of 1 John. In 1 John, 46 times in 26 verses, John will preach love. Listen to these precious, beautiful words. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. means the satisfaction. And this classic verse in 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. You know what that's called? The fact that we love because He first loved us? That is called covenant-keeping love covenant-keeping love the Lord Jesus Christ formerly known in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord he's given himself to us and he's even given us a reminder even in the Lord's table he's reminded us this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me I want to prescribe to you a healthy dose of 1st John a healthy dose of coming back to the Lord. I understand that sometimes depression and life and difficulties can enter in. But be wary. Beware of that numbness. Beware of that coldness seeping in. And run back. Run back. Let's pray. Our Father, it is only by your Spirit that our love was ignited in the first place for you. We love because you first loved us. And Lord, in the course of our Christian lives, we have these grand moments, these Gideon moments where we obey and where you do great things through us. But Lord, perhaps we have our Jared Baal moments as well where we may return to the previous idols. We may return to that which we are more comfortable with, worldly concerns and comforts. Lord, I pray for any here who have sensed their own love growing cold. Help them, Lord, to be convicted through preaching. Help them, Lord, to cleanse through removal of whatever idols in their heart need to be taken down. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman who does not know Christ at all. Their love has never been ignited. I pray that this would be the day that you would open their eyes to the beauty and the glory of Christ, that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn to the one true and living God. They would turn to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
to Jesus Christ our Lord. And may you ignite their love for the first time. May the wind of the Holy Spirit blow and allow them to be born again. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman who is, whose love has grown cold because of pain, because of suffering. Let them not go down the road of self-pity, of selfishness, but let them, Lord, instead run to you, run to the glorious truths found in our Bible, run to the admonitions of love found in 1 John, and come back to the, the flames, the glorious warm fire that only those who are in Christ are invited to enjoy. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.